Welcome to the Why on Earth Communities Stewardship and Sustainability Podcast Series. Today, we have the opportunity to visit with Jonathan Granoff. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, thank you. Great to be with you today. It's beautiful here today. Absolutely beautiful day. Beautiful. Yeah. Jonathan Granoff is an international lawyer, advocate, scholar, and award-winning screenwriter who serves as president of the Global Security Institute representative to the United Nations for the Permanent Secretariat of the World Summit of Nobel Peace Laureates, and Ambassador for Peace, Security, and Nuclear Disarmament of the Parliament of the World's Religions. He serves on numerous advisory and governing boards, including the International Law Section of the American Bar Association, Bawa Muhayyadeen Fellowship, Universal Sufi Council, World Wisdom Council, Tikkun, International Association of Sufism, Middle Powers Initiative, and the Parliamentarians for Nuclear Non-Proliferation and Disarmament, working to bring the values of love, compassion, and justice into action. He is a fellow in the World Academy of Arts and Science and was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2014. Mr. Granoff, is the award-winning screenwriter of the Constitution, the document that created a nation, and has articles in more than 50 publications and books, including The Sovereignty Revolution, Toward a Nuclear Weapons-Free World, Imagining Tomorrow, Analyzing Moral Issues, Perspectives on 9-11, Toward a World in Balance, Reverence for Life Revisited, and Hold Hope, Wage Peace. He has been a featured guest and expert commentator on hundreds of radio and television programs and testified as an expert in the United States Congress, parliaments of the United Kingdom and Canada, and at the United Nations numerous times. Jonathan, it's a, a real pleasure and honor to have this opportunity to visit with you and uh, appreciate you taking the time to share with us. Thank you. So we have a lot to talk about today. And uh, today, in fact, is October 2nd, 2019, the International Day of Nonviolence. Tell us about that. Let's kick off well, with Well, the United Nations recognizes today as an international day of nonviolence with a focus on Mahatma Gandhi's message of social change through nonviolence. And uh, actually, there's a great web, web TV, the UN TV, of October 2nd, 2015, where we, I was able to participate in one of the one of these, with uh, a cellist, Michael Fitzpatrick, and we had they gave us 15 minutes at the end of the session, which began with the Secretary General, where Michael played this beautiful resonant cello, resonating the heart, and I read quotes from Mahatma Gandhi, and then spoke from my heart, and so we we tried to combine the heart and the head the policies that Gandhi promoted of nonviolent social change and the artistic uh, intervention of a genius artist, Michael Fitzpatrick. And I'd recommend uh, that. And at the end of the show, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll put some recommended links and we'll put the links to that stream that the UN does. Mahatma Gandhi's main social policy message remains pertinent today. He said, Imagine the face of the most disenfranchised person that you know. 
the, the outcast, the poor. And then if there's a policy, think, will this policy burden that person or benefit them? It's really resonant with what Jesus said in, in Matthew, uh, where, you know, he says, I was hungry, did you feed me? I was naked, did you clothe me? I was in prison, did you visit me? I was sick, did you visit me? And then the, the disciples say, well, Master, we never saw you naked or in prison or sick or anything. And then he says, what you do to the least amongst us, you do to me. And uh, as, a, as a focus of policy and intention in our lives, it's a really, really accurate metric. If you think through policies that work and don't work in life between nations or even in, you know, in your own personal life, having compassion as a, as a metric, compassion for those who suffer, uh, and, and, and serving to eliminate that, not only uh, works politically and socially and economically and for peace building, but in the most amazing way, ennobles our own spiritual growth. Mm. You know, you would, you know, like the Buddhist first truth is uh, the world is suffering, right? Just to recognize that. There's old age, sickness, death. We all suffer. We all lose people that we love. We all, we all have disappointment, betrayal. Uh, things don't work out. The world is not heaven. But he, he gives a path to becoming free from that. And one of the core elements is uh, cultivation of the quality of compassion. And non-attachment, of course, and wisdom. But you see in the Quran begins, each, each verse of the Quran begins, in the name of God, compassionate, merciful. This focus on compassion as, as a way of becoming joyous in one's own life by feeling the suffering of others. How illogical and paradoxical it is that fulfillment comes from the willingness to feel others. Mm -hmm. One's own personal, you know, so I think there's a lot of people that are like trying to expand consciousness. And my belief is it would be better if we expanded conscience. Yes, expand conscience. So, yeah, so another cool UN day is April 5th mm. is because of the work of Bahrain is going to be International Day of Conscience. And next year will be the first one and, and we'll see where that goes. But uh, you know, conscience is a human capacity of tremendous power, but it only arises in a meaningful social way based on what you look at. Gandhi says, look at the face of the poorest. Look at the face of the, those who are suffering and have compassion there and then act from that point. So today is the day of honoring that message. I love it. Well, and I love in this term conscience, the etymology would suggest that with science, knowledge and con with. Yeah. It's knowledge with, with another. With knowing. Yeah. With knowing. And of course, um, uh, uh, Jesus' admonition and Gandhi's admonition and Muhammad's admonition is not just knowing anything, but know, know what people go through. Know what other human beings, what, other, what, what, what the suffering of poverty, the suffering of uh, environmental degradation, injustice. We should look at that and know about that and care about that. You know, people wonder why they have trouble 
being at peace with themselves. Mm -hmm. Well, the formula is not real difficult, you know. Apply the golden rule. Um, let's do a thought experiment. Great. Okay. Imagine tomorrow you treat everyone without reference to the golden rule. Okay. You treat everyone just as a means to your most selfish end. Mm. You don't care about their well-being. Uh, you love things and use people. Uh, you give vent to your anger and most uh, despicable qualities. Mm. And uh, you don't care about their well-being or dignity. And then just think of how you would feel when you got in bed that night. That doesn't sound very fun at all. Right. You'd be, probably be alone. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. You'd probably be alone. Then, a thought experiment. Think the next day you treat everyone with the dignity that that, that, that you're capable of that, and the love you're capable of and the dignity and love you want for yourself and you treat everybody you meet as part of your family and uh, you, you know you just do your best for yourself and others as you, you treat others as you would want to be treated you apply the golden rule mm. and then think of how you would feel at the end of the day the peace the joy the fulfillment um, now when you think of how nations behave because April 5th will be a UN Day, and nations don't have conscience, but there's ethical principles that arise from conscience. And the ethical principle that arises from conscience is the universality of the golden rule, treat others as one wants to be treated. When nations treat other nations as they want to be treated, friendship, trading partners, and success is the result. When they don't, chaos, instability arise. So after World War I, the victors imposed tremendous burdens on the German people and we reaped the whirlwind of Nazism. After World War II, the United States led with the application of wisdom with the Marshall Plan, the consequence being building up the vanquished Germany and Japan and having trading partners. Yeah. The sustainable development goals of the United Nations system in a sense, or a global application of those principles, a global Marshall Plan, if you will. Right. The welfare system in the United States, uh, or public education, and all of the things of the state that we're forgetting in the United States, all the things that the state does for us, yeah. that we, or that's our state, that it, it expresses our values through the state, um, benefit everyone, the common good. And this principle of Pursuing the common good, pursuing uh, the expression of values, of our highest values through the, through the state, has to be based on the golden rule. Yeah. And that has to include everyone. There can be no, there can be no, uh, no one outside of that all men are created equal. Yeah. It has to include, which it didn't when it was, when Jefferson put it out there, it didn't include called people of color, it didn't include women, it didn't even include people without property. Right. Like we know that behind it is the principle that all lives are precious and equal. Right. And right. that and all nations need to be precious. We now know we cannot be have a secure nation in an insecure world. The idea of running our nation, the United States or any state, like a a garrison city state of medieval times with walls around it is preposterous. The climate doesn't have walls Pandemic diseases don't have walls. Capital doesn't even have walls. It flows through the global economy seamlessly. Um, the air we breathe doesn't, doesn't have walls. We are one human family. We live in one 
one very fragile, miraculous stratus stratosphere-covered biosystem in which everything is put together by this majestic hand of grace to allow us to blossom as human beings. And when we honor that and honor the ethical principles that the wise have given us and put it into policy, society flourishes and our personal lives flourish. What's really cool is that the same principles that make us happy as people yep. can make uh, can make nations flourish. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. There may be, there may be a, a moral fabric to the human, cre the human endeavor. Mm -hmm. In other words, um, there isn't a moral fabric for uh, other, other uh, living species. Mm -hmm. they, they don't have the obligation of choosing right and wrong. Mm -hmm. But we do. And we, and we have the, the, the capacity of choosing right and wrong, that capacity is called conscience. So, in this long exposition that I've just gotten into, and I apologize for this. This is beautiful, it's I, poetic. I apologize for <laughs> it. I think we should think about expanding conscience rather than expanding consciousness, because as the heart expands, so does consciousness. And expanding conscience is expanding the heart. Ultimately, our heart should be in accord with the natural, it, a, a resonant heart, a heart that's in tune with the cosmos, consideration, a considerate person, considerial in harmony with the cosmos, would be reflective of the natural world's reality, which is borderless. So today, International Day of Nonviolence, we're talking about International Day of Conscience, we should be pursuing hearts without borders. Aha, uh -huh. beautiful, hearts without borders. Hearts without borders, that's a good good motto. So you've had, in just the past I, I few like weeks. I like that, hearts without borders. Oh yes, let's, let's pursue it. <laughs> let's title the show. Hearts without borders. <laughs> discussion, a discussion of. We can do that. Yeah, that's, I mean, <laughs> I think it's a wonderful reflection. We can, we can title our discussion, Hearts Without Borders, <laughs> And then you can title your series that you'll be launching the same thing. <laughs> you know, the past few weeks, you've been in a number of, of really remarkable meetings and gatherings. And I was really looking forward to you sharing with our audience what were these gatherings, who were you with, what was being discussed? Okay, so um, every year, the Nobel Peace Prize winners have a summit. Uh, last year, we met in Bogota, Colombia to support the process of ending the Civil War there. So we had about 25 Nobel Peace Laureates come. And uh, this year we met in the Yucatan, and we had about 30 Nobel Peace Laureates. Yucatan come. in Mexico. In Mexico, yeah. right. Uh, so the, some of the Nobel Peace Laureates that came were Frederick de Klerk, who won the Nobel Prize with Nelson Mandela for ending apartheid, Shirin Abadi, the human rights lawyer from Iran, Atabakal Karman, the, the courageous journalist from Yemen, uh, President Santos from Colombia, who helped end, uh, end, end the, the civil war there, uh, Kailash G from, uh, who won the Nobel Prize with Malala from India, who's addressed child slavery, uh, the lawyers from Tunisia who helped 
with the Arab Spring and the transformation to a really functioning democracy and that we don't hear much about because it's a success story in mm. North Africa. Lema Gaboe, who ended the civil war in West Africa. Um, and uh, Nobel, uh, Jody Williams, who was so instrumental in uh, addressing landmines and, and uh, the distortions of militarization and, uh, and, and a strong advocate of uh, gender equity. A balance between male and female and policy and uh, and others of a similar inspiring nature and, and and Nobel Peace Laureate organizations like Pugwash which brought scientists together during the Cold War from the Soviet Union in the United States is an unsung most of the public mm. doesn't know about these organizations that won the Nobel Prize um, I'll just come back to that one in a minute yep. um, International Peace Bureau that's hundreds of peace organizations uh, Amnesty International, the uh, International Red Cross, uh, Human Rights Watch. And uh, these are people and organizations that have applied the highest human values to critical issues of peace and won the Nobel Peace Prize for their efforts. Many of them uh, Many of them were challenged, their lives were challenged, uh, they, they, they risked their lives to do, to do these things, and, and they were successful. That's another interesting thing, is these are people with tremendous moral insight who were successful in their endeavors. So we met for three days there, um, and then produced a, a statement addressing most of the major critical issues of our time. Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, contribution uh, was that we must immediately uh, affirm what he and Ronald Reagan affirmed in Geneva in 1985 a nuclear war can never be won and therefore must never ever be fought and and immediately the commencement of negotiations amongst the nuclear weapon states to fulfill their legal obligation to negotiate the elimination of nuclear weapons stop their spread stop their modernization um, this year's Nobel Peace Laureate recipients was the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which worked to create a treaty prohibiting nuclear weapons. And, uh, and th their message is that the weapons are uh, illegal, immoral, and of military uselessness. You can't use them. We now know uh, the international positions for the prevention of nuclear war were there. They won the Nobel Prize in 1985. And their spokesperson, Ira Helfand, highlighted that if a mere 100 of them were to go off, say, an exchange in South Asia between India and Pakistan, it would throw at least 5 million tons of soot into the stratosphere and end agriculture as we know it on the planet and civilization. So I thought, my thought is we used to have mutually assured destruction. We now know that if one country used them first, we would have self-assured destruction. Sad. It, it's kind of like... Um, a group of, we used to have a, bipo, a bipolar world of the, of the U.S., now we have nine countries with the weapons, and uh, it's as if we have these characters sitting in the basement of our house, knee-deep in, uh, knee in gasoline, holding matches, and saying, if we don't get what we want, if we feel too threatened, if our state feels too threatened, we're going to light the match, and then everything's over. Mm. So. I'm the president of the Global Security Institute that was started by the vision of Senator Alan Cranston mm -hmm. from California, who met Albert Einstein uh, and was convinced from the late 1940s how important this issue is. And yeah. he had a couple of points. Yeah. One point that he made was, 
If we get every other issue right and don't get this one right, it won't matter. Right. Number two, nuclear weapons are unworthy of civilization. Yeah. And, uh, and, and number three, uh, number three, the, uh, the, the need for global cooperation in the pursuit of security is not an option anymore. It's an imperative. Yeah. And it's not a diminution of our sovereignty to cooperate with the rest of the world. Right. It's an expression of our values, which sovereignty is a concept, is an application. The creation of the state is something we created. We need to, we need to, in, we need to infuse with sufficient power the international organizations necessary to get us to a nuclear weapons free world. I'm pleased to say that from the time of Ronald Reagan's advocacy of this with Gorbachev, We've gone from over 60,000 to less than 15,000. So we know how to get rid of them. We know how to stop their growth. We know how to stop their modernization with further stopping further testing, bring the test ban treaty into force. Don't produce any more nuclear capable fissile material. Strengthen the safeguards regime. We know where they are, we know how to do it. The problem is the political will mm -hmm. and the arrogant pursuit of power arrogant pursuit of power, arrogance yeah. toward the natural world, arrogance amongst ourselves is uh, endemic in the human condition, and the wisdom of the founding fathers of the United States to create checks and balances on the pursuit of power yeah. is something that's so important at this moment. Precious. Yeah. At this moment in America, right. in, which, in which America, which is such, has such a global impact as we behave, others will so behave. Yes. And the idea of autocratic, arrogant application of power by a handful of people or by one person is simply unacceptable, irrational, and extremely hazardous and dangerous in today's world. And domestically in the United States, today, as we speak, we're facing a crisis in this, a serious crisis yes. that I don't think the mainstream media or the social media has fully grasped mm. how, um, how pivotal this moment is yes. for the world. It's as if it's the big test thus far, perhaps hope, hopefully the only big test to our constitution and the balance of power that was established by the framers. We haven't had a test like this since the Civil War, in my opinion. Yeah. And the Civil War was, uh, let's, let's talk about America a little bit. This, yeah. The Civil War was essentially a battle between the assertion of maximum property rights the right to own mm -hmm. human beings, mm -hmm. the claim that property is paramount to human rights, right. and then the minimum human right to be a citizen, which doesn't get resolved in law until the 1960s civil rights statutes. Mm -hmm. The states that lost, these red states that lost, they essentially argued for years that the Civil War was not about owning human beings. Mm -hmm. It was an issue of states' rights. Mm -hmm. But that's, a, that's, a, that's just a smokescreen. Yeah. What they were really saying is it's states' rights in order to own people. Yeah. This is a horrible proposition. Um, and, and that was resolved in a war, which, you know, huge bloodshed. Today, we have something even more fundamentally at stake. Not only the American system of checks and balances, the three co-equal branches of government, the legislative branch, which makes the laws that are to be executed by the executive branch, which doesn't make or interpret law. Right. It executes what the Congress tells it to do. Right. And thus, the executive branch in our system is accountable to the Congress. 
this executive is saying, we're not accountable to the Congress. Right. We're not accountable to anyone. We're not accountable to anyone. We're not accountable to the international community. We're not accountable to God. We're not accountable to the Congress. We're accountable to popularity that or tweets. It's, it's degrading, it's immoral, and it's illegal. And the other portion of our government is the, leg, is the, is the judiciary, right. which has the sole and exclusive uh, duty of interpreting the law. Yep. And now we have the executive branch padding the judiciary with a, coming from a very small, extremely right-wing fanatic group, the Federalist Society, padding uh, judges. We have an American Bar Association with 450,000 lawyers, and this administration essentially ignores hmm. ignores the wisdom of the of the of the an, an enormous resource of the American Bar Association in its decision making, and goes to a very small, ideologically driven group. So the balance of our nation is is at risk. Absolutely. But deeper than that, deeper mm -hmm. than that, in my opinion, is after World War II. The United States became the beacon of principle and hope for the world. Now, people don't realize the value of vision if they look at a short-term, measurable, management-by-objective perspective in terms of policy. But when Thomas Jefferson put forward, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, well, that's obviously hardly self-evident. You're tall, handsome, young. I'm young, overweight, and uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not very young. <laughs> I'm young at heart, but I'm not young. <laughs> so are, are we equal? We're equal in the eyes of the Creator, and we're right. equal as human beings. Yep. But more importantly, this was an ought. Uh, the, our vision should exceed our grasp. Mm. And this vision has been compelling to the world ever since he said it. Uh, tyrants have fallen all over based on putting this vision before the people or the vision of one man, one who rules everybody. Mm. And uh, it, it has been the underlying vision of the, uh, of the moral compass of the world since the end of World War II because the United States was so triumphant in it. Mm. And out of that has come the creation of at least 80 democracies that were colonized peoples, but more importantly, a set of principles that are at risk. And let me just list some of them. Yes. One is the sacred duty of those who govern to those whom they're governing to be honest, accountable, and transparent. Two is the importance of the rule of law, not the rule through law. In the rule through law, the state rules through the law. In the rule of law, the state is also subject to the law. And you don't have different tiers of, of, of law for different classes of people. Um, the use of science as a framework for evaluating and discussing public policy, that there are objective truths that are distinguishable from myths and, and simply making stuff up. Um, uh, uh, three, uh, the importance of global cooperation through treaties to contr control, curtail, and eliminate weapons of mass destruction. As an American, the Constitution makes treaties, the supreme law of the land. We have a president now who talks about treaties as if they were deals. Mm -hmm. People don't grasp how, no. how, how dangerous this is yeah. because it's not only distorting our relations with other nations, it's under, undermining our Constitution, 
We're the first nation created by a legal instrument, the Constitution. Another, another very important uh, gift uh, or leadership of the United States, the importance of, of the rule of law and constitutional democracy. Um, the promotion of the fundamental values and freedoms embodied in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, which, of, which, which is irreducible, indivisible, and inalienable. You can't sell your human rights. And they don't come from the state. They come from the inherent dignity of being a human being, that all human beings have these rights, including asylum seekers, including, including mothers from Central America, including everybody. Um, these are a few of the principles that I think are, are at risk now when, now that America has given up its global role of leadership and said we're, gonna, we're not, we're not going to care about the rest of the world, we're just about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And in this vacuum you have five aspiring empires, right. Saudi Arabia, Iran, Turkey, China, and Russia all of which are basically authoritarian in different guises, ideology, economics, or religion. And they don't, they don't adhere to these fundamental principles that are so important. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's not just the Republic of the United States at risk. You throw out science, you throw out values, throw out accountability. It's unlikely that we'll have a global order of sufficient uh, quality and cooperation to protect the climate to protect the phytoplankton which we breathe, which breathes us from the oceans, the rainforests, the topsoil, the water table, eliminate poverty, and get rid of nuclear weapons before they get rid of us. The level of global cooperation and leadership that's necessary uh, could fall apart if we lose the United States. So that, to me, is what's at risk, yep. and why everyone watching this should be demanding of uh, of of all of our political leaders answers to three questions, especially, I hope journalists are watching this. One, what are you doing to eliminate poverty? Yep. That's the moral imperative of our time, because it's the first time in human history that you have the technological, social capacity to eliminate poverty. A mere pittance of our military budget could take care of it. Two, what are you doing to protect the climate and the natural world? We don't have a choice about that. It's imperative because never before in human history has human endeavor impacted the natural world like it does now. We haven't had a climate this warm in 10,000 years. Uh, and, uh, and number three, uh, what are you doing to get rid of nuclear weapons? They need to be asked these questions. They're not. They're being asked questions that are not as pertinent. And I would urge that every journalist who watches this uh, ask those questions. Beautiful. I want, to, I want to ask you, Jonathan, at the gathering with the Nobel Peace Laureates, it seems there could be a convergence between these otherwise disparate existential threats that we're confronting. Are you seeing signs of, of hope, notwithstanding the incredible challenges we're facing, that the nuclear issue, the climate environmental issue, and the governance and sound leadership issue? Is there a convergence underway in absolutely. the global community? Well, absolutely. Um, so actually, the other event that I was, I chaired the yeah. uh, the Vision Forum with the country of Bahrain at the UN yeah. on what is our vision for the future. And we had a bunch of foreign ministers and you know, people are understanding the need for the, addressing these principles all over. But yeah. 
I have spoken to youth in China, in Russia, all over the world, and there were over 3,000 young people at this Nobel Peace Laureate Summit. And you, you see this um, with the diplomats, even from the most challenged regions, realize that uh, we have to recognize our shared destiny on the planet Earth. Um, I was speaking to uh, the gathering called Seliger, which is in Russia several years ago. Vladimir Putin convenes this. Uh, two weeks before I was there, Putin was the main speaker, and then after that, the week before, Sergio Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, was the speaker, and then myself. This was the cream of the youth of Russia. Mm. And I began and I pointed out that 50 to 70 percent of our oxygen comes from phytoplankton, a single cell organisms in, in the ocean, yes. which depends on the health of the oceans, which depends on the balance of alkaline and acid, which depends on the climate and the balance of fresh water and, 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 and salt water in the oceans and the temperature, and that we are breathing together this shared blessing blessing of enormous majesty from the Creator, mm. and that we should have some gratitude. The response that I got from these young people was so positive, so hopeful, they were so knowledgeable, and so connected. And then I said, in the meantime, instead of our nations cooperating with each other, we're, we're pointing nuclear weapons at each other. Mm. Do any of you want to wipe out New York City? Do you think that your counterparts in New York City want to wipe out Moscow? Right. They were cheering. But they were supporters of their of their country. Yeah. But I had the same response with kids in China, the same response with kids in Mexico, the same response of kids in Philadelphia or New York. There's a class that has grown up with a global awareness, a global consciousness. The kids going on strike on the climate are all over the world. The kids are right. So anyway, in Mexico, I had like thousands of kids I was speaking to, and I said, change the heart, change the system, not the climate. And it went, went wild. Love it. However. When I was in Russia, I went to some of the smaller towns outside of Moscow, and I saw kids with the tattoos on their neck, talking like this, with the attitude, with attitude, without gratitude, angry, without faith in religion or spirituality, without connection to the natural world, without hope in their government, without connectivity to the uh, emerging technologies that that internet and other communication systems give us without trust in their government and they're angry and they look a lot like the white nationalists in America. They look a lot like the passionate supporters of, uh, of tyrants all over the world. They are easily manipulated. They don't understand science. They don't have the capacities of critical thinking, and they're being manipulated by a small cadre of people trying to destroy modernity and lead us to a mythical existence that never existed in the past. So we saw it in the United States. Make, make America great was code for make America white. And we had Cambridge Analytica and other enterprises using Facebook, which cooperated with them in manipulating public opinion. Well, they've done the same thing in, in, in England with Brexit. They've done the same techniques in Brazil, all over the world. And we're seeing that we're seeing this battle between 
a class of young people emerging with a heightened level of global consciousness, hope, wisdom, wisdom in young people, and provincialism, fear, xenophobia, racism, nationalism, going the other, and religious fanaticism going the other way. So we're in a battle for the heart, for the spirit, and for our institutions. And uh, everyone watching has got to step up and, and answer this most important question. Have I come in contact with the love and caring that's part of my human dignity today? Am I honoring it within myself and, 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 and uh, making myself a zone of peace, making my family a zone of peace, and working to make this world a planet of peace? Am I fulfilling my human responsibility uh, to the highest extent possible in my job, in my job as whatever one is doing, whether they're doing carpentry, medicine, law, anything to bring excellence and dignity to what they're doing and to demand of our institutions that express our social values, the expression of these values of peace and love. We, 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 we have to do this. We can't put this off for a day. It is time. It is time. The time is now, Jonathan. Let me, on that note, just take a quick pause <laughs> and uh, remind our audience that this is the Why on Earth Communities Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series. Uh, why? And why yes. on Earth? Oh, yes. uh, let's talk yes. about yes. why. <laughs> <laughs> and today we, we are visiting with Jonathan Granoff. And um, we're going to put in the show notes several uh, resource links that you can explore. This includes uh, the Nobel Peace Laureate Summit, the Global Security Institute, the Parliament of World Religions, the International Law Section of the American Bar Association, Move the Money, the Peace Pledge Project, and the uh, United Nations TV video that uh, Jonathan referenced that included him and Michael Fitzpatrick back in 2015. We'll include all that. I want to be sure to thank all of our sponsors for making this series possible and for making our community mobilization work throughout the country and internationally possible. These sponsors include the Association of Waldorf Schools of North America, Beauty Counter, Earth Coast Productions, Equal Exchange, the International Society of Sustainability Professionals, the Lidge Family Foundation, Madeira Outdoor, Patagonia, Purium, and Wele Waters. And of course, a very special thank you to all of you individuals in the Why on Earth community who have joined our monthly giving program. It is with your support that we're making this possible and that we are reaching more and more people and communities all over. And if you haven't yet joined the monthly giving program, you can go right to whyonearth.org support or just go to the home page and hit the donate button. And when you sign up at any level that works for you, I will send you an email with a special code that you can use to download unlimited free copies of our ebook and audiobook resources to share with friends, with family, with colleagues, anyone in your community. So be sure to check that out if you haven't yet. And um, it is such a joy, Jonathan, to to have this opportunity to visit with you and I we can talk some about why on earth of course happy to do that I also want to ask you 
about the the history the transition into the nation state what was the reason for that what lessons might we learn of course many of us live in nation states we all do basically and we probably take for granted it wasn't always this way right and uh, it's a, something i think it's really important that we're aware of well the, the modern state was a creation uh, in the 17th century in the 17th century the main event in the western world was the thirty years war where catholics and protestants were slaughtering each other in massive numbers in central europe maybe a third of the population was wiped out and they were going to keep killing each other as uh, around the issue of uh, whose understanding of jesus love was better and um, there were there were uh, there were some wonks from the northern part of Europe. L people learned in the law thought, well, the institutions that we have, the governing institutions, are unable to constrain these irrational passions. And they met in a place called Westphalia uh, in 1640s and created the modern states and through a bunch of treaties in which you had Protestant states and Catholic states so you could separate the people who were uh, fighting for their understanding of God's will. I think it was really their own, their own will at issue, because God's will is moving from love of self to selfless love. And the modern state comes out of that uh, discussion, that dialogue of unsung heroes, I believe, now, they wouldn't have been able to do this if a technological innovation hadn't also occurred around that time. A hundred years before then, when the world was, that part of the world was the Holy Roman Empire and, and city-states, the feudal society as we knew it, um, if you were in Lyon, you didn't speak pretty much the same language as somebody in Normandy or Paris. Or if you were in Naples, you didn't speak the same language as somebody in Rome. But in between this period, uh, this guy Guttenberg came up with a printing press that created a coherent language and grammar. So you had a similar language, a local language, not Latin, which is the language of the Holy Roman Empire, in Germany, a German, an Italian, a French, and you could create a national identity around using language. So the technological innovation of the printing press was really important in creating the identity of the modern state. Today, we have the internet, which creates a global identity, commensurate with the political institutions necessary for the governance of our world today. And we're at a moment in which we simply have to identify the global existential threats that face humanity, use the communications and transportations capacities of modern technology to weave the human family into a recognition of its oneness and its and, and our integrated fate. And a lot of this comes from answering the question why? <laughs> and I, you know, uh, I, w I want to put a link on this also to when at the millennium the government of India produced a book called Imagining Tomorrow uh, the first essay was by the Secretary General, and it had many of the world's great thinkers and leaders imagining what the world of tomorrow should be like. 
And uh, I was privileged, they asked me to write an essay on uh, international law, which is basically my expertise, international law and security. And every time I sat down to write it, it was like, well, everybody knows you need, you need the rule of law. Uh, for security, and it was. I didn't think there was anything new or insightful that I could say, so I prayed, uh, and what came to my heart was I should write the highest truth that I can understand, and I did, and I wrote an essay called "The Forgotten Why," uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought to myself, we have forgotten the why of things, yes. and the consequences. We've become very preoccupied with technique or how. Yes. The consequence being <laughs> the consequence being a financial system not rooted in goods and services, not in harmony with the natural world, but a financial system preoccupied with the amassing of capital, which is the how of lubricating economics, but not the why. A medical system addressing symptoms, not healing. Modern art largely about art about art not about beauty and and inspiration religions without without love and transcendence preoccupied with rites rituals practices and dogmas um, philosophy modern philosophy is largely taught as the technique of philosophy um, uh, law with law so preoccupied I practice I practiced law for several decades in the commercial world, so I, I, I saw how so much of the law is preoccupied with procedure rather than its main purpose, which is justice. Um, and the pursuit of security through weaponry, ironically, the more which we perfect, the less security we obtain. The nuclear weapons being the most burlesque example of that, and we've just pledged $1.7 trillion to uh, modernize the U.S. arsenal, and others are, are, are following suit, so we're entering mm. into a horrible mm. arms race. Mm. Because they believe that this how will bring greater why of security, but it's wrong. Right. Um, security is not gonna be obtained by more weaponry, uh, economic harmony with the natural world by more capital, uh, human health by isolating symptoms from causes, uh, religions uh, failing to uh, expand loving kindness and compassion and preoccupied with the definitions of theology and differences of identity and rituals. So I wrote The Forgotten Why. And I thought to myself, well, how to express the why of the human endeavor? And I think for me, it's, it's really inarticulable. It's mysterious. It's so profound. Uh, I mean, just the basic consciousness of being human is uh, is so magnificent and uh, mysterious. Uh, let me give an example. There's something inside of our hand that touches, but you can't touch it. Like if we cut open your hand or my hand, we won't see the thing that touches, will we? Mm -hmm. There's something inside of our eyes, there's a light in your eyes and a light in your eyes, and a light in my eyes that sees, but you can't see that. You can't see the thing that's seeing. There's a thing inside of us that knows. And where is that? In other words, if, if we cut Aaron open, will we see that thing in you that knows? No, we're, 
right? It's so, the most intimate part of our being, our knowing, our awareness, is mysterious and wondrous and humbling if you look into that. Indeed. It's humbling if you look into that. So I think very much part of the, and the, and the wise since time immemorial have said that there's this deep relationship between the pursuit of kindness and compassion and patience and the pursuit of virtue and the kind of knowledge that reveals the inner self. And it's not necessarily accessible to the intellect, but it is accessible to the heart. And my, I'm on the board of advisors of the Jane Goodall Institute, and, I, mm -hmm. and, and, and I, I commend anyone to, to look at uh, some of the dialogues that Jane and I have had together on the internet. And, and, and Dr. Goodall, who's an inspiration to me, um, said that the distance that modern man has to travel is from the, the mind to the heart. Yep. And a great Sufi master with whom I studied, Bawa Mahayadeen, said that the key to modernity's success or failure will be, are we capable of separating from ourselves that which separates us from others? So on one level, it's our race, religion, gender, etc., that separates us and our common humanity brings us together. But on another level, it's anger, falsehood, jealousy, all forms of selfishness that affirm the illusion of separation that separate us. And what brings us together is love, compassion, patience, tolerance, brings us together not only with each other, but with our own self. Yeah. So I think part of the why is discovering our own humanity, is discovering the, uh, the mysterious power that gives us breath and life that we cannot neglect neglect honoring the sacred in our lives. That That's not something the state can do. It's not something in politics. It's something independent of all conditions, in all circumstances, in all conditions. We have an obligation to honor the sacred gift of life, this temporary journey that we share together. And, uh, and, and those who engage in that will find that there is virtue within themselves and to find ways of bringing that into action. And that's the why. That's what I believe is the why. I love it. That's, that's what I believe totally is the why. Line. It's totally not a real in. new idea, you know? <laughs> and, and that our political institutions, when they reflect that inherent dignity, yeah. even, if, even if we pay the price of hypocrisy and falling short and achieving it, are empowered by that, that ins the inspiration that comes from that pursuit. So I did this movie of the creation of America, uh, the Constitution, and studied deeply the character of the people that were so instrumental in the miracle in Philadelphia in 1787. And a lot of them were not really very elevated. They were just there for economic reasons, which is good. I mean, economics is a great, is, I mean, producing wealth is very important for a society. Uh, but there were others who understood that stability in society and peace in, in society and the balance of power and the ba balance that would allow dynamism and creativity but check arrogance was really a genius. And these guys were really deep, reflective people. I mean, you know, I mean, Benjamin Franklin was a deep guy. I mean, he, was not, he wasn't a saint, he wasn't perfect, but he was concerned with developing his character. Seriously, he even went so far as to develop 
a system of evaluating character development, where he graded himself, yeah. you know, how did I, each day, like how did I do on compassion and justice and patience and love? And then he hit a wall when he tried to do humility. Like how do you grade yourself on humility? <laughs> so I think- It's a for, koan. It's a koan, it is, right. But for the state, how the state has to operate it is the public, we have a duty to hold our politicians accountable to these virtues. And the way in which we temper it is not by punishing them by being for their arrogance, because you need kind of like arrogant people to be good politicians. Mm. They got to be real up about themselves, you know? Mm. It's called law yeah. and checks and balances and the rule of law in which our political leaders have to be accountable to the law. And if we throw that away and allow political leaders to operate above the law and game the law and degrade the law and degrade the institutions of law, we are, uh, we are facing tyranny and chaos and uh, destruction. Uh, the law, in a way, is an uh, externalization of conscience when it, when it is fulfilling the principles of justice. So the forgotten why? Uh, I'm going to put a link to that. Great. Uh, yeah. yeah, we will add that. There's another moment, another miraculous moment around the time of the formation of our country here. Yes. Which is Washington refusing yes. to essentially become a king. Yes, yes, very important. And what he's doing in that moment is saying, no, this is about the law. This is about the institution. This is not about me as an individual rising to a position of omnipotence or whatever right, the equivalent right. might be. Right, I think he realized his mortality and he realized his own limitations and he saw the benefit of making the citizens run the country. And so when he left, he was very proud to become a citizen. Now this principle of service, I mean, Willem de Klerk in, uh, in uh, uh, who's a, you know, a really courageous man, risked his life to end apartheid in Mexico at the summit of the Nobel laureate said, Poli uh, politics is a calling is a calling, but not, not just a profession. So we had a discussion about it, <laughs> and I suggested that politics is a calling, the currency being the pursuit of the common good, not the pursuit of self-aggrandizing identity and power. And George Washington was an example of that. But we have even bigger examples of that. There's examples of uh, the Prophet Muhammad being uh, offered to be the king and leader of the world or being a servant of compassion and love and, and patience and kindness. And he, and he decides that he would rather be the servant of the qualities of God. People in the West don't understand that's normative Islam. It's not Wahhabism that's coming out of Saudi Arabia or the Ayatollahism in Iran. But that, and so that, that's why over a billion people are attracted to this faith because its core leader doesn't say that he's a god, he says he's a servant of compassion. The Buddha calls us to be servants of compassion. And in the instance when Jesus is in the wilderness and given the choice of ruling the world, and what is it with Satan, right? Yeah. What does he do? He says, get behind me. Yeah. This ego, the ego, I'll rule the world. No, no. And what, is, what does he do? He says, I'll give my life for love. Or Socrates. Socrates is offered his freedom, knowing that the, that the state of Athens has wrongfully convicted him of challenging 
um, of, of destroying the state, right? It's a wrongful conviction. A trial is a fix. And he said, but I'll drink the hemlock because the law is so important for the community. He gives up his personal life for the benefit of others. And you and I today are the beneficiaries of what these people have done. And in every instance, whether it's, it, it's it, I don't like to put Washington together with, you know, at the same level of Jesus, uh, but the principle is what Jesus would say is important. You know, the principle, God's principle of love for others and compassion, that those qualities, if you find anybody trying to imbibe those qualities, they will have humility. Because it's not easy. It's not easy to be uh, loving and kind uh, because it involves also patience, and we seem to want everything now. Uh, it involves humility, which is uh, not very, you know, we don't have a lot of teaching of humility in our school system, right? You know, our, always got to be first, and we, we're the winners. A humility involves humility. It involves reflection and uh, and patience. We want immediate gratification in our culture. It's very yin. It's very yin. Thinking in terms of yin and yang. Yes. Yeah. There's yes. A, there's a balance. There's, there's a a softness to it. It's not about always charging ahead full steam. There's a certain trust. Right. Right, there's a trust that we belong in this world, it's not fallen, it's not a mistake, and that we can tune into it, and that there are principles of morality and justice that can be applied in the affairs of human beings. And that's, that is what's at stake at this moment. Yeah. It's our very, yeah. it's our very uh, uh, preciousness of our humanity is being debated. Um, do, we, do we really believe in democracy, do we believe that reason can overtake selfishness, passion, anger, falsehood, jealousy, uh, racism, religious fanaticism? You know, um, is our humanity strong enough? Is it time for those of us who believe in the dignity of every person to step out and, and, and say, well, we have a right to a clean planet. We have a right to a balanced climate. We have a right to live caring for the poor. We have a right to a future. We're not just going to consume everything today. Uh, we, have, we have a duty to future generations. These are the principles that are at stake today. Um, and the thing is, we know how to solve these problems. We know, I know you're an expert in uh, regenerative uh, agriculture that if we, would do, if we would do agriculture correctly, we could solve a, a, an enormous amount of the climate problem. Other people are, are, are experts in, in, in diet. If we cut down in the consumption of meat, we could do a great deal to protect the rainforests, which are being cut down to produce grain, to, to produce hamburgers, which do a great deal to drive people into hospitals with <laughs> health issues that there are cycles of virtue that when you take one step in a good way, in a beautiful way, many other things happen. Uh, I have great respect for the wisdom of our traditions. And I'm a conservative in many ways. I think that when the government 
of any country breaks its accountability to the people and is not transparent and accountable. I join with the conservatives who say, well, I don't trust the government. Well, of course, I don't trust the government and I don't trust any governments. That's why Ronald Reagan was right. Trust, but verify. Well, you can't verify without accountability and transparency. And that's built into the American system of justice, that, that the president is no higher than the homeless person in the eyes of the law. And when we start treating the president as somehow like a king, then what did we fight the American Revolution for? Um, why did we, f and, and, and if we have distinctions of race, what did we fight against Nazism about? I mean, uh, what have we spent blood and treasure as Americans for? But more importantly, what what is what is it to be human in this moment in history? Jonathan, um, it's been an, an absolute delight and, and an honor to have this opportunity to visit with you today. And uh, we, we're in no rush to wrap up. I'm, I'm just curious if you might have any specific uh, calls to action or uh, advice for our Why on Earth community audience. It's a diverse group from communities yeah. all over and uh, for us to have this opportunity to hear from you uh, with with your friendships and your networks working on so many of these essential issues uh, I'm, I'm curious what you might share in that regard well I, I did I did have call to action of true. asking these questions true. True. that we I have to we have to demand of our political representatives uh, what what are you doing to eliminate poverty what are you doing to protect the climate and the, and the natural world? What are you doing to get rid of nuclear weapons? Because each of these unpacks enormous, they're like acupuncture points in our society. And each of us to ask ourselves each day, what values am I finding within myself? What are, what are, my, what are, you know, what are my most beautiful qualities within myself that makes me human, that makes me fulfilled? And, and you'll find if you, if you do that, there is a greater power, some call it God, some just say it's beyond words, that gives us life. And that's humbling. And, and then you start to open up. And then to ask yourself, how am I living in accordance with that, with my wife, with my children, with my family, with my community? How am I supporting people and institutions that go forward with this? Um, money is a way of expressing values. So we, so I'm involved in a thing, count the money, mm -hmm. um, where we're, we're move the money. You'll see the website to, to just say, well, we're spending way too much money on uh, on milit on the pursuit of security through military means. Well, military means have not done real well when Alexander the Great tried to invade <laughs> the Indus Valley around you know from Pakistan uh, onward. It didn't do real well when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan or when we invaded Afghanistan or Vietnam or Kashmir or the Middle East or Chechnya. These, these don't really bring the kind of security and peace that we need. What does bring security and peace is promoting the well-being of others as you care for yourself. That's what works. The business community understands this. The business community mm -hmm. is going global. Mm -hmm. The business community has a legal regime through arbitration where, where contracts are honored globally. We know how to govern ourselves. Mm -hmm. 
but the disproportionate power of a few right now, a few of, of a few, is distorting our uh, public dialogue. But we're not accountable for them, and we're only here for a short time. We are each accountable for ourselves. So the fourth question that we all have to ask ourselves is, what are the deepest values that we have, and, and how, are, how am I bringing them as best as I can into action? Now, and, and, and to really, really uh, do, do our best to bring uh, the qualities of loving kindness and compassion in, into action. Yes. <laughs> love it. Well, and I love how Socrates created an axiom that wisdom necessarily leads to action. Yes, and, but he said that you can't, it's difficult to pursue wisdom. So he said you can't really pursue gnosis or wisdom, but you can pursue virtue. So, and so he defined virtue, of course, as caring for others and these perennial qualities. Uh, and when, a, when our nation pursues these qualities by taking care of children, by having education, by having health care, when any nation does that, um, it, it blossoms. I mean, look at, look at Sweden, for example. Sweden recognized before other countries the impact of technology on the natural world. So they established what they call the precautionary principle, right. which Huge. means that if you're going to put a chemical or something like that into the environment, you have to show that it will do no harm. The American Chamber of Commerce said, oh, this will wreck the, the, the economy of this country. On the contrary, their economy has boomed. We don't have that principle in our laws in the United right. States, and we should. And uh, so, um, so one of the things that, that, that our public institutions have to do now is recognize that our, our economic order is based on the premise of infinite expansion. The natural world doesn't work that way. 300 years ago, there was no garbage. We're producing more garbage than we can get rid of. We're turning the, we're turning the planet into, uh, into, as if it were a resource and not a living system of which we are a part. And, and uh, it's simply not, not accurate. Our accounting, for example, doesn't take into, or our general accounting principles in our institutions doesn't take into account the pollution of water, air, and, and earth. Uh, these are realities that are considered externalities that are simply passed on the cost of which to future generations. Our accounting should, should account for the use of these resources. Uh, but behind all of this is and uh, America has stood for that, those principles as best as we can. That's what makes America great. Uh, and any society in which these principles are applied is great. There are, there are so many blossoming things you see on the planet. I mean, Bhutan has proposed that not only do we need a, a, uh, a, a GNP, gross national product, of just producing things, but we should also care about producing happiness. All right? And it, it turns out that a lot of the, like, for example, it's very difficult for a person to be happy if they don't have one bed. You need one bed. But the difference between having one bed and five beds in your house in terms of happiness is minimal. But going from no bed to one bed is a big leap. But after you have one bed, three square meals a day, adequate health, 
and security. Your happiness is dependent on a lot of other things other than merely acquiring stuff. Right. It's, it, it, your happiness is dependent on expressing your human values, uh, your social relationships, um, your, uh, uh, your artistic uh, appreciation and, uh, and creativity, your engagement in, in, uh, in helping others. Those are the metrics of happiness they found out. So economists are now starting, and educators are now starting to include happiness in the pursuit of happiness in, in, their, in, their, in their metrics. Uh, schools are saying, our, our students do better when they're happy rather than shamed into doing well. Happiness. Doctors are discovering that our health is better. Yes. <laughs> well, who knew, right? I mean, it seems so self-evident, right? Yeah. But, uh, but, it, but, it, but apparently, we haven't organized our institutions around the knowledge uh, and the wisdom that, we're, that we are affirming. Happiness is very important. And happiness comes uh, more from an open heart than from the selfish acquisition of vanity and power. Happiness comes from the open hand better than the fist. Absolutely beautiful, Jonathan. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for visiting with us today. Well, anytime, Aaron. It's great to talk about good things, really? especially as a lawyer, where we're usually, <laughs> you know, I mean, look, it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful day. Yeah. This is this is my home. We're in the backyard of my home yeah. in New Jersey. Uh, it's beautiful, and uh, to be able to sit and talk with a brother about things of the heart and things of significance uh, is, you know, it's truly a pleasure. And, and thank you for doing this show. Thank, and uh, for people that are watching, this is the kind of uh, media that needs to be spread. Tell your friends about it. Share these talks with, with other people because uh, these are discussions that matter. And we're in a period in history in which ideas and, uh, ideas and vision are significant. Uh, and and, and, and think, of, think of your own vision and think of your own best vision and share it. Wonderful. Thanks, everybody. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org backslash support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WHYONEARTH, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.